thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And OMG, my <laughs> friends, my friends, <laughs> we have an amazing show for you guys today. Let me just say that about this. We have a really gorgeous, very, very spunky, very, Every spunky guest on today, so I do suggest, ladies, if you Google him. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just have to get that out there. Now that it's out, I feel better. So we have, <laughs> we have- and, and and she didn't want to turn the video off. I just want everybody to know that she did not want to turn the video off. <laughs> no, no. Well, my friends, when you Google our guest, you'll understand why. So we have the amazing Kale Brock on the show with us today. Welcome and the crowd goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me on today, girls. (laughs) So we've got a really great relationship with Kale. We've known him for so many years. He's we've watched him as he's come through the nutrition and the wellness industry by storm. And he's a filmmaker and he's a speaker and he's just a downright awesome guy who is up to some really awesome things and when I say take the world by storm I really mean that intentionally simply because Kale has got an attitude that is relaxed it's accommodating it's warm friendly and he's not about um you know he's not about putting anybody down and Kale I want to say that's something that I've always known about you as I've followed your journey over the years you've always been so encouraging and inspirational in this space. And I really want to hand it to you for maintaining that, um, that way of being in an industry that can sometimes be quite heavy. So hats off to you. Welcome to the show. Love you to bits. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like you guys have built me up to be a, quite a character to start with. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you have to live up to that. Yeah. Ready, go. Kale, Karen's absolutely right. We have watched you grow from speaking with you at the summit, the Wellness Summit, a number of years ago, to seeing you go from being an award-nominated filmmaker to an author to a speaker, as Karen said. But can you tell us, uh, and especially with the name Kale Brock, I mean, Mm. you've, you've got to give it to us. Tell the listeners who don't know you how you came to being here with us today. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people do ask me if that's my real name. Um, I, I won't lie, I still get that almost every single event that I do. Uh, but it is, it was, it's the one that I was given when I was born. Um, and I, I sort of arrived in this, I was born in the country and out back in South Australia and bounced between there and Adelaide growing up and got into footy and started playing footy at a high level, then got into surfing and then actually got sick when I was 16. I was diagnosed with a heart condition called supraventricular tachycardia and I would uh, have quite intense arrhythmias with that condition uh, to the point where I would almost faint and they, they would often happen either on the football field or they would happen out in the surf. And almost fainting out the ocean is not a great situation to be in. So we went to the cardiologist and I got sent home with all the 
different battery packs and whatnot, and it came back as this condition. Um, I was offered a pretty, uh, I think, narrow-minded option by the traditional um, model, the traditional medical model, which was to undergo an ablation. An ablation is where they would have entered my heart and burnt away a piece of the heart. Um, and then <clears throat> I had nutritional ideas at that point and I sort of put it forward that perhaps nutrition had something to do with it. This was me, the very bold um, <laughs> vegetarian 16-year-old trying to lecture the cardiologist from across the table. Um, and I said, look, is, is nutrition got anything to do with it? Because I'm, I'm quite keen on that. And he said, no, it's got nothing to do with it. But I was actually led down a different path and managed to train under a naturopath in Adelaide for about um, eight or nine years. I was at, She was able to mentor me. And uh, it only took probably six to 12 months to really start managing that condition just using lifestyle and nutrition and a bit of supplementation without surgery. So that was pretty exciting. And I think I had natural journalistic tendencies at that point. Went on to work for Channel 10 for Totally Wild, the children's program. And then from there, I've just been freelancing and, and speaking about, um, I guess, well-being from a, from a story perspective uh, since, since then. So that's when I got to know you girls and it's been quite an experience. And, yeah, it's led me to where I am today. Yeah, I've watched you. And it's so funny, we ran into in Adelaide, Kim and I, when we were down um, right. in Adelaide for a wedding, which was just hilarious. Just in the middle of nowhere, we see you and we're both going, isn't that Kale? I'm sure that's Kale. <laughs> but I, I got to work with you on your gut movie and I love the front cover of your gut movie because it's uh, one of my favourite places on earth, which is Sisyphe in Namibia. Do you want to just talk about why did you decide to do the gut movie and um, you know, what was your experience and what did you learn? Yeah, I think that was a natural extension from what I was doing originally, which was just talking about uh, gut bacteria, talking about the microbiome, talking about fermented foods. And with my background as a TV journalist and someone who, you know, eventually wanted to get into films anyway, I think it was the next step. And we did the Gut Healing Summit where we chatted with you and um, we thought there's a bit of a story here that needs to be told. So the idea was to sort of put me out of my regular environment. I flew to Namibia to live with the San over there for a week um, and we would test my microbiome before I left and then whilst I was there to see how it changed and how quickly it changed. And we would also take samples of the sun's microbiome whilst we were there. And we would use that journey, that experience as a bit of a, a medium uh, upon which we would give, give commentary to, to various experts from around the world on, on, on gut health. Um, and, you know, we had yourself, we had Professor Thomas Barodi who really pioneered uh, fecal microbial transplantations. We had Professor Mimi Tang, who was doing, who was reversing peanut allergies using probiotic um, oral immunotherapy. We had, in the international version, we had Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride talking about gaps and, and all that sort of different stuff. So I, it was just my sort of wrap up of the gut microbiome is how I saw it, how I saw it. And um, I, I just, it was a story that I wanted to tell. And I think, you know, there were some people who sort of wanted more science there were some people who wanted less science uh but for me i think I've, i'm always going to try and come at it from the angle of of a storyteller and try and try and hit those traditional story arcs and um really appreciate that format for what it is 
so that was the goal that I had. And I think in the end, we sort of told a pretty compelling and, and visually exciting story. I mean, you go to Namibia, it's one of the most beautiful places. I know you guys have been there and, and you, I think you take people there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's one of, it was one of the coolest experiences ever. And I think I learned how quickly the microbiome can change. That was one of the biggest things. Um, and how key your environment is in determining the type of microbes that exist on you, but also inside of you as well. Yeah, it is, it's really interesting, the adaptability of the microbiome as you change your foods. And not only is that adaptability, I believe, um, can be good if you're consuming the right foods, but can also be very damaging if you're consuming the wrong ones because it will adapt to those foods. Like it, it just does that if you're feeding... Um, the sugar-loving bacteria, then your microbiome will adapt to those sugar-loving bacteria, bacteria, which are the, usually the ones that, you know, cause us mental distress and immune um, system problems. But I'm really interested in the sands. So they were in Namibia? Yeah, the sun were in Namibia. So they, we were about, I think we were about eight hours from the closest town out in the, in the, the bush. And what food did they eat? Because it's desert in Namibia, so it has to be animal. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what these guys, do, they're definitely not vegan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're living a very traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh, to the cl- as close as they can get to their traditional lifestyle because they were traditionally a nomadic people, but they're... Um, their environment, their geography has been restricted somewhat due to various socioeconomic reasons. Um, so, yeah, we got to go out and go hunting with them and we got to go foraging with them. They, they live off a lot of plant food, a lot of different plant foods, but calorically I think they get most of their food from, from animals uh, and that involves hunting with the, with the poisoned arrows, you know, the famous poisoned arrows that they get from the the mopani worm mixed with some spit and some different um stuff that they all put together in this little thing around the fire uh so we got to do that we got to try and hunt some kudu uh and we got to dig up some really thick rich tubers as well you know looking at different starches and, and soil interaction as well as part of their lifestyle was quite crucial i think in determining their microbiome and you look at these people and for the most part they're they're incredibly healthy looking very lean uh, very strong, very agile, uh, and I think that w- that was quite distinct. You know, if we're we're living in an age where people are, you know, half of people are overweight, uh, whereas these guys, it was like ninety five percent of them were quite lean and strong, and they didn't eat a lot of food, they didn't uh, drink a lot of water, they're breaking a lot of rules, but it turned out they they were extremely healthy, and their microbiome samples tended to um, reflect that. And that was quite an entertaining experience as well, collecting the microbiome samples. Um, <laughs> I bet, yeah. So how did yours compare to theirs? So mine was quite restricted in terms of variability. So mine was quite, um, it was not as diverse as them, which you would expect generally because these guys are living amongst the microbes. You know, they're, they're in touch with the soil every day. They're eating food that's unwashed. And uh, in comparison, I'm living quite a, a sterile life. And this is something that became quite, um, obvious is that the way we live, that, that this sterile, artificial environment that we uh, inhabit here in the West is, is probably not doing our microbiome any good. I mean, we've seen the studies that show that children who grow up on farms tend to have stronger immune systems than city-living kids. 
Mm. And I think that um, was it was a big sort of wake up call for me in that I needed to really start to get out there more. I mean, I'd surfed every day, but I wasn't like sipping up the water. I wasn't, you know, getting heaps of food from the ocean. So now, you know, from then I came back uh, very interested in in foraging around my local area and learning the foods and plants here. Um, and, you know, now I do a little bit of seaweed harvesting down at the beach and I'll do some fishing and I'll, I'll grab some herbs from around the place that I know exist naturally in this sort of area. So that was my sort of my take-homes from that experience was that we have a different environment. I'm going to have different microbes from these guys, but I can appreciate and encourage my microbiome to, to flourish uh, in accordance with my geography um, just by doing those simple things, such as interacting with the environment more and, you know, continuing to eat a nice slow diet, a seasonal local organic whole food diet. Now, you just had me a little bit worried. Like I wasn't, I'm not worried about what you've just said, but I've really been mulling over the poison arrow and the mm -hmm. mapani. So <laughs> I have mapani oil. It's an essential oil um, from the secrets of Namibia. So it's, it comes from the tree. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned there. And I have eaten the mapani worm in Namibia. So I didn't know they made arrows. <laughs> <laughs> with the mapani worm is it, I, please tell me what that's about because i didn't die after eating the mapani worm and i've eaten quite a few of them sorry no. karen <laughs> <laughs> um it was a mixture of stuff and you know what it might not be the mapani worm but there was a worm from the mapani tree i'm ah, pretty right. sure so i may i may have that wrong so thanks for correcting me but basically they take this little white worm uh from from this the inside of like a like a husk and they, they pulled it out and I remember watching them sort of knead this worm, this white worm with a finger and then essentially cut its, uh, we're getting graphic here, essentially cut its head off and then squished out the juices out of one end <laughs> into this little um, dish that they then added a few other herbs and stuff and um, muscle toxins which essentially paralyzed the animal. Yeah. I, I just find it fascinating that, they figured that out. At the moment, I am rereading the Earth Child series, so Clan of the Cave Bear, Valley of the Horses, the Mammoth Hunters. So I'm rereading it. I read it when I was a you know 19, 20 year old. I started reading it, and you know the knowledge that um, of our cultures and traditions that they figured all of this stuff out. So I think that the author had done a lot of um, research into the history of uh, hunter gatherers and. Um, the cultures and traditions and how they did things, how they made leathers and how they made these arrows with poison in them. So um, I just, I find it fascinating. And I think even reading this for me is making me go back to that calmer, quieter, where can I get my food? Like I'm now fishing off my um, pontoon and I um, fish my, for my dog and I used to fish for my cat. So I've started to do things like this because I kind of feel like every time I buy cat food or dog food, it's like in plastic and um, wouldn't it be better if it was not in plastic and how do I do that? So, yeah, this is I, – I hear you, Kale, I really do because I think that when we go to places like that um, and when we travel to far lands that are not developed, especially Namibia, that is such a desolate country, but you see the sand, you see the, the himbers and the herons all living a lifestyle that um, 
you know, is incredibly with nature. And they lived into their 80s and 90s because I, I also visited the sands. Um, but I didn't visit the sands that were what you did. I visited the ones that were near the Bitumen Road. Mm. Yeah, but I just find their cultures and their understanding of nature uh, incredible, which is where they would get the diversity of their microbiome. I think so. And it's also a super relevant observation because I think a lot of what I've tried to do is trying to reapproximate a traditional lifestyle whilst living in the modern world. Yeah. And it's quite difficult to do. It's always a, a give and take scenario and it's, it requires constant attention and um, re-evaluation. Uh, so I think that is, is that, that conundrum. It's not only difficult, but also it's quite meaningful. Uh, in yeah. that we need to honour our our very primal roots uh, whilst also going on this ride that modern technology and, you know, the, the modern social dynamic is going to allow us to do. Um, and we need to sort of realise the consequences of, of both. You know, if we try and bury our head in the sand and, and live as a hunter-gatherer now, it's going to be very difficult to thrive. Um, but if we can somehow honour those origins by implementing certain strategies into our current life then i think we can get the best of both worlds but it's a very interesting and and delicate dynamic which which for me it's so exciting to explore actually it gives me so much joy to even talk about um so yeah i think it's a very relevant sort of poignant area yeah and i think it's about making the evolutionary body believe that it is still living a, a lifestyle that it has been biochemically accustomed to live mm. instead of this modern one. And we can do it. There's, there's no reason exactly what you're doing and spending time in nature. Like I get up and I watch the sunrise. So does Kim. And I know, I, like, I'm not sure if Karen does because you know why? <laughs> I ride past her place every day on my way for my swim <laughs> and her curtains are drawn. <laughs> always miss Karen they're always drawn and I'm trying yeah. to pull her to the beach with me but anyway you're so funny no, I do I'm usually at the beach between sort of six and half past six oh, sometimes okay. I don't get that down there till seven but no Matt likes to sleep with the house you know all of the curtains all drawn and everything closed but what you're seeing is my shears because we don't have oh. the the blockouts closed <laughs> All right, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about your longevity film. Like I can't believe you're creating another film. Like for me, you know, I did What's With Wheat and um, that took me ages to do and to think about the interviews and how we're going to put it together and then the marketing and then the, the, the travelling and the tours. and the, So I am in awe that you are putting out another one. Um, so tell us about you know, tell us about it. Tell us about how you even decided to do this and where you visited and, and what you've learnt. Yeah, I, I think for me when after I had done the gut movie, I knew that it was there were going to be people who, um, for want of a better word, misconstrued it as, okay, we need to go more micro to, to get healthier. I need to focus need to zoom in more. Um, but what I had found in my own life and what I had found worked for a lot of people was understanding the philosophical 
and more broader mindsets uh, and ideas behind health and well-being. And I think to zoom out it was always going to be the next step. And originally I was um, looking at doing a documentary on flow states and, and, and the neuroscience and owning that, but just logistically that one was going to require a lot more money. Um, so I thought, well, I'll wait until the government's ready to fund that one <laughs> and rather than funding that one myself. So th this, uh, the longevity film was, was the next one that I'd wanted to do. So I'd spoken with um, Damien and Marcus about what they were doing for a long time with, with 100 Not Out and Ikaria always saying, like, what you guys are doing as a doco, like, it'd be a really cool story to tell. Um, so I basically said, all right, well, this year is going to be, be the year to do it. So we've self-funded both films. Uh, this one was obviously a lot more expensive because we had to travel to Okinawa in Japan, uh, Loma Linda in California, and Ikaria in Greece. And for those of you who are astute in this space, you'll know that those are three of the five blue zones around the world, longevity cultures where the average lifespan tends to exceed the average here in the West by, you know, five to 10 years. And those are really high quality years of life. Um, so the idea was to take me out of my comfort zone again uh, of living up here on the northern beaches in Sydney and, and put me into a, a totally different culture and, and see how my uh, values and, and uh, mindset essentially clashed with, with people who are getting some incredible health and well-being results i mean if we just look at okinawa for example these guys are spending 97 percent on average 97 percent of their life free of disease whereas here in australia we have half nearly half of all children living with a chronic disease um so it's pretty incredible that the contrast between the two and um to go and see those cultures and to see what they're doing which which by the way, often breaks the rules of a lot of ideas that I have, these preconceptions that I have around surrounding health and well-being uh, was quite incredible. And, and, it, was, and it, was in, it, was, it was compelling for me. I've, I've come back very much a changed person from this trip, even far more than the gut movie changed me because I think I've had to reevaluate what I'm doing and whether that's sustainable. And, I mean, you know personally how hard uh making a film is and for me before coming back the pre-production was incredibly stressful and it was damaging my health and i knew that but it was it was i had to do this in, in this endeavor to get the film out whereas coming back from the trip armed with essentially new ideas um i've actually coped and handled this whole process easily honestly it's been so easy this time um, and, and I'm busier than ever. I mean, I've just completed the last two months have probably been the busiest of my life, but uh, I feel fantastic and I feel like I'm riding the wave very easily. So um, what's the difference? Please give us the secret. Mm, I yeah. know. Well, okay, there is no one secret. Um, of course but for not. me, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of what I went into it thinking is, you know, are, are they going to be all doing certain things are they are they all meditating are they all fasting but they're not telling anyone like all these all these modern ideas of of well-being that you know they're going to be increasing human growth hormone here blah 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 blah. um but it turns out they're just they're quite simple they're just living really simple lives and they're not kicking back on hammocks sipping margaritas or sake they're they're busy uh, you know and they're active and they've had hardship throughout their lives but they tend to be ticking off the boxes of nutrition movement community and attitude and those are the four sort of pillars that i've 
identify them and we'll discuss in the film and, and in the, <clears throat> the book that partners the film. Um, so I think, yeah, when, when you check off those and when you get those right, uh, it stands you in good stead to live a long, happy life. I think everyone listening to this is probably going to live a long time. Um, but I think now we really need to start discussing how we're going to ensure the quality of that time because if my family's anything to go by, um, and, and according to the statistics it is, uh, we tend to bounce in and out of hospital for the last five to seven years, even 10 years, 20 years of our lives here. Um, and we're on a slew of medications that come with a, a wide array of side effects that greatly diminish the quality of the life that we, we experience and diminish our capacity to, to engage with and fully uh, enjoy the relationships that we have with our family and friends. And I think that's a, that's, that's a real sad situation, uh, especially when we can overcome it. So, I mean, if you're looking for one thing, I think for me the biggest thing has been um, allowing myself to be busy without getting frantic and living meditatively as opposed to meditating for 20 minutes each day to power on into an unsustainable lifestyle. So how do we live meditatively? How, do, how does that work? I don't think it's that difficult. I mean, Thich Nhat Han talks about doing the dishes to do the dishes. And Karen talks about this a lot, I'm sure. Um, so I, don't, I think there's, I don't know how to access this, this secret of, of stepping back in those moments and finding various anchors throughout the day um, to go, okay, this is the process. I'm allowed to be in the process right now. I've got to now experience the process for what it is rather than think about what's coming afterwards. So um, that for me is, sorry, I've just, it's very windy here in Sydney. Um, so I've just got to step back and really experience each of these things that I might consider to be obstacles. But in reality, I think they're not obstacles, they're opportunities for me to come back to the moment and sort of um, enjoy things for, for what they are. And even things that have previously been quite stressful and annoying, like in post-production on the film, is a, is a bit, you know, you're sitting down all day, you're, you're doing work on the computer, you're not outdoors, the surf's been pumping, I've been missing good surf. But um, I think those are opportunities to come back and go, hey, this is all part of it. Uh, this is all part of the journey. There's nowhere else I need to be. Um, I think that's what the people in the longevity cultures do really well and that's probably been my biggest takeaway personally. I remember Kim and I uh, somewhere and somebody said, and Kim might remember this, uh, something about stress and stress is trying to get something done a and believing that there's a, how is it, how is it, Kimmy? Stress is a distorted relationship with time. time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> mm. and, and that's what it is. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what you're talking about there in terms of answering that question for you too, Cindy, I think um, it's all, and it's great to sit down and meditate for 20 minutes and, and afternoon and, you know, to take that, that quiet time. And I think that, you know, we have to learn to do that. We have to make that time for ourselves. And the true benefit of meditation is learning how to be meditative in a world of chaos mm. because that's what real life is. You know, when, as soon as you walk out of, as soon as you get up from your meditation pillow and you start your daily life, you're in a whole world of noise and a whole world of chaos. 
and it's learning how to exist inside of that in a meditative state. And one of the ways that I do that, and I'm not perfect at it by any means, but it's absolutely my number one most important priority is to bring myself back to the present moment. And I do that by taking my awareness to the back of my tongue or I ask myself, what's my big toe doing right now? Or my left eyebrow. And I take my awareness from the world outside back into the world inside. And it makes me very, very present to um, myself in time, in space, in chaos, and in all things that can go wrong and all things that can go right. And then I ask myself a question, especially if I'm in a really difficult situation, is I'll say to myself, what's right about this? Rather than focusing on what's wrong about it, which most people do, and that's just the human condition, I think, is I just ask the question, what's right about this? And I look for what's right rather than focusing on what's wrong. I don't know if that helps. It's beautiful. Oh, thanks, Kale. <laughs> so, Kale, can I ask you, you talk a lot um, about longevity and the importance of it and the purpose in our life and community and movement and nutrition, and I, I think we can all comprehend that. But something that I noticed in the prelude to the movie were the two words, act young. Could you mm. explain to us a little bit more about what acting young means to you? I think I'd said that when I was uh, in the, I was at the Panagiri, which is a religious celebration in Ikaria, and I was up in the hills, and it was a very medit- romantic Mediterranean setting with this beautiful stone courtyard with this, you know, hundred-year-old church and a kitchen um, on the side of that with with wild cooked wild um, goat being cooked in this this big drum and then all these um, homegrown Mediterranean salads uh, floating around. And then what was very interesting and what sparked that comment was all the dancing that was going on. Um, And the people that were there, there was this blend of ages. And I say blend because there there was no old people's table and then a young people's table. It was just this blend of hair colour, <laughs> you know, sitting at each table uh, and these people were getting up dancing and, and the, when they got up and they were engaging with each other, uh, crossing that typical divide that we see across age ranges, um, they did seem to soak up the youth of, of their their companions on the dance floor. And I think um, in those moments, and that's what I was saying in the trailer, that they are 20 years younger. And you see it in their eyes. You see that sparkle. There's something timeless about them. There's there's something very attractive, this sort of affable smugness with a lot of the graceful ages in these cultures. They carry a lot of contentedness and um, they're, they're incredibly humble to the point where I was sitting at the Panagiri and most of the people don't speak English in Korea. And I would be sitting there and they would just walk up and shake my hand and pat me on the back and give me a big smile and then walk off. You know, and and it's very rare to see that, I think, in Western culture. We we often segregate, we segment uh, different age ranges. We have, 
you know, a children's table when we have a party. We have an adult's table. Uh, we, you know, we might even have a grandparent's table. Uh, but I think what these cultures do is tend to blend together. And Paul Check talked about this when I interviewed Paul Check. He talked about um, at every level that children are one of the most important things we can do to uh, keep our old people young because in a traditional setting, uh, it would be the grandparents who would be looking after the children whilst the parents would be out hunting or gathering. And he was sort of saying that children will, and these are his words, children will inject youth into the older people to the degree at which they'll meet them at their level because it's not just this esoteric idea. This is, you know, if if an old person has to get down on the ground with a child and has to play with them, all of a sudden they're engaging in infant development movements, you know, and... um, you know, you're crawling and you're lunging and you're bending and pulling and pushing. Um, so, so there's a very tangible benefit, I think, to that cross-generational interaction. There's a saying in Okinawa that the children should live close enough to the parents that they can make soup, walk it over and it still be warm. Um, and you see a lot of this, this intergenerational living as well in these cultures where oh, the son lives next door or, or the, um, the son and his family live downstairs and the parents are upstairs. I think all those opportunities lead to uh, more, in, more engagement and more um, time where older people, or not even older people, just any people feel like they're a lot younger than they are. And as you guys would know, as we are in mind, we tend to be in body if we feel like we're a lot younger. If we don't give ourselves the excuses of, no, I'm too old to do that now. I'm too old to go dancing on the dance floor at um, 85 or 93 years old, like some of the people in Ikaria or like Yoshiko, my, my friend in Okinawa. We watched her sing karaoke and dance all day and then, you know, have me, have me over for, for tea and little Okinawan donuts. Um, it, was, it was a really cool thing to see that there's just this, there's no time for them to grow old. It's like, no, I'm too busy. And I don't think I'm old. I'm independent. Like, it, you know, there's this very strong mindset that, um, that totally uh, belies their, their age. You know, one of the biggest things that I've noticed, and I think Karen's um, alluded to this as well, and I'm sure Cindy's seeing it, is that in this day and age, we know that suicide is so high in this country. And I think according to research, it's our highest teenage killer. And there's a real interesting dichotomy occurring where we feel the words are being used like lonely and lost, don't belong and don't have a purpose. And i just love your take on what you think we could do to make this society a more safer, harmonious, integrated society where our teenagers didn't feel so alone, our elderly didn't feel like they were a burden, and the cross-generational aspect you're talking about actually became the norm. Can we be saved? <laughs> I think so. It's hard to mimic what these cultures are doing because we've grown, I guess, unsustainably large. Um, but we can reapproximate their lifestyle. I think we can we can implement certain aspects of it uh, very successfully to to great benefit. And I sort of it's it's hard for me to get real tangible because I'm not in the space of policy making. But I think if we somehow create routines and habits that honour these principles, then we are going to see some change. For instance, if we do have 
um, more time where we allow older people to actually engage with younger people. Uh, and traditionally this would be older people passing on wisdom to the younger people and younger people passing on youth to the older people. Um, I think we'll see benefit. And, and Dr. Ali Walker spoke in, in the film. She was talking about how loneliness is, is now at epidemic proportions and it's worse for us than smoking, obesity and substance abuse. Um, we, we have an epidemic of loneliness and I think we, we are often reaching for the phone and trying to access community digitally and trying to talk about mental health digitally on these social platforms um, but I think the answer is actually to maybe make a phone call, but actually even better to go and chat with someone in real life and, and look someone in the eyes. Because when you do that, there is this neurochemical rainbow that cascades um, throughout our, our biology that, tends, that has a massive impact on our health. You cannot replace uh, this in-person very real conversation and experience. And I think we're trying to do that. I think technology has sort of come in as this surrogate, um, almost religion, if you will. It's sort of replaced a lot of things in our life. I think we need to step away from that or use it much more consciously than we do uh, to allow ourselves more time to honestly and authentically engage with, with other human beings because you can have all the problems in the world if you're in a if you're in a room with people you love who make you feel really comfortable where you can totally be yourself and you're all having a laugh, the problems tend to float to the back of the head, don't they? I mean that I think is the most powerful tool we can use. So what does that look like? Perhaps it's a community group. I know Cindy gets up and goes swimming all the time. And I see all those people running out in the water in her photos and I think that is is perfect when I walk down the beach. In the mornings to go surfing, I walk past a group of six or seven men who catch up and have coffee every morning. And I think that is just as important of a health tool as sipping your green smoothie every morning. Well, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's really interesting. I um, had an event on my farm and I had a, a special guest speaker on Sunday and I said to her, right, tomorrow morning we're getting up, we're watching the sunrise, we're going swimming. And, um, and that's all I said to her. I didn't say that I meet, meet a group of guys or anything like that. And so we get down there and then everybody's there. And, and she goes, you do this every day? And I went, <laughs> yep, every day. It's just they're my community. Yeah. You know, they are my community. They're the ones that I physically react, you know, like interact with. And, and see, not with my, you know, social media, but with, you know, we interact every day and we're with each other for a good hour, hour and a half. So I agree with you. I think it's about creating those habits um, that helps you connect with people. And we do. We live in our little isolated homes. Like I said, you know, this Earth series, you know, they live in tribes. They're all interacting all the time. And you're right. You know, I do when I'm a little bit, oh, I don't know what I wanted. Oh, I might just look at Instagram and see what my kids are doing. You know, that's just, it's a bit sad, isn't it, that I do do that? It's not sad. It's, a, it's an easy, it's an easy um, tool, isn't it? It's just a tool that we've yeah. perhaps misplaced or, or given um, an excessive amount of value. I mean, I built my entire business off social media. I get it. 
I see the power in it, but it's got its place. No, the, no one's out there dictating the rules and saying that social media has to be um, your one and only. It has to be the most authentic expression of you. I mean, I put up a very, I probably put up a 20% version, um, 20% kale up on social media. The rest I reserve for my in-person <laughs> interactions because I think that's what's real. That's what's exciting. And that's really um, probably, Kim, what's going to save us from from our, our woes is, is talking to each other. <laughs> I agree. They, they do actually say that the antidote for depression is connection. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's something that, I, you know, and this is a question that I've, I've been pondering lately because I have Spirit Hive where we bring these communities together and we, you know, we come together and do some educational stuff and do lots of stuff with the youth. And what's really interesting is that social media is not going anywhere fast. Like, you know, it's definitely a part of the culture. So for us, I think we've grown up um, not having it and then having it so we can see the necessity of going back to connection as our primary way of, of, of managing our mental health and well-being. I'm really interested, Kale, in terms of what your thoughts are for the younger generation in the context of, you know, they, they, that it is a reality for them. It is a way of life for them, um, so much so that it's almost as if we've got to find a way for them to um, <clears throat> survive life mm. um, in the way that they are conditioned, if you like. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. What's your on that? My my sister is uh, thirteen years old, so yeah. she's right in the in the heart of it. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know all the answers, but I think it comes down to having wise, authoritative figures in their life, because if we have parents and teachers and grandparents as well who are able to effectively um, prescribe a non-technology-based experience, a positive experience for children, um, then we're going to see more value placed on those experiences. I think going in the direction of, of bringing iPads into schools and, and going down a very technological-based pathway mm. is always going to have its limitations um, because we, we, I guess we, we use these platforms we use these technologies as a bit of a crutch to lean upon to cover up our inability to effectively communicate with one another and i think for my sister um i've seen the most and i know it's going to sound a little bit silly but the most effective way for, for us to bring her back to the present and, and to bring her out of her shell now is to to engage in a little bit of teasing and a little bit of play and you know to take the phone away and to, to, to hide it and be those type of people, those types of brothers for a while. Um, and then all of a sudden you see, you see a new person because you've got, you know, um, you've got Zia who's on her phone and then you've got Zia who's, who's here in real life. Um, and I think that the two are totally different people. Uh, and that's okay. That's okay. We're allowed to have a different persona online to in real life. In fact, it should be expected. Unfortunately, I think we're getting our, our children are getting their ideas identities um tied up with their social media accounts uh and if we can change that and if we can sort of say hey no who you are is 
it's the actions you take every day. It's the relationships you have. It's the effect you have on other people. Um, you know, I think we're going to just empower them to, to become more informed about these technologies. And I guess people go through that. But what we're missing now is, is this walkabout time where people become adults. There's no transition time. I took it. I've traveled in my van for a year surfing around Australia and that was my walkabout. Kids, a lot of kids don't get that these days. They, they, they're told they have to finish school, get the good grades, go straight into uni and then get the job and then all of a sudden they're 25. Uh, they've never had time to work out who they really are and what they really want and what they really value in life and what they want to spend their time doing. And they're wondering why they're not feeling fulfilled. They can't go and chat with someone because they'd rather send a text and they're not comfortable chatting with someone. I think it's just a recipe for, for disaster and we're seeing the, the results of that. Um, so I guess the answer is, is to encourage more in, interpersonal interaction um, and how do we do that? There's loads of ways we can do that. And I don't think the answer is, is bringing more technology into school. Oh, no, look, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It mm. breaks my heart when I see these little nine-year-old kids and eight-year-old kids and even five-year-old kids now that are, you know, the parents have got to buy iPads for them and that's the way that they, you know, the teachers write on an electronic board Mm. And it Bluetooths to their iPad so they don't need school books anymore and they don't actually learn to write. And the spelling now is, you know, problematic. I just, you know, I just, um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what a worldwide answer could be. And I hear everything that you're saying and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And then I just think of the families that don't have that same viewpoint. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's always going to be differing viewpoints and, I mean, that's yeah. great. Yeah. I think that's that's how we drive progress is by having differing opinions on um, on topics. That's how discussion is is garnered, and we, we need more mm. of that. Um, kids can still be savvy with technology uh, with with less of it. I mean, if we don't need to spend, I mean, kids are spending eight hours a day sometimes oh, on yeah. screens. That's if anyone doesn't argue that that's excessive, then I mean I don't know what is. Mm. Um, so if we can encourage more people to still be savvy with technology but spend less of their time on it, then I think we will start to see a bit of a societal shift. Mm. Um, Cal, from your point of view, I mean I know you're an author, you're a speaker, you're also now obviously an accredited and award nominated documentary filmmaker. You're also an educator. Could you tell us which is the best medium for you to inspire change? Um, I do. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I'm obsessed with, with coupling, and this is why I'm a filmmaker and, a, and a story, I guess a storyteller. I'm obsessed with coupling visuals with, with words. Um, and for that reason, I, I love video. Uh, and I think films, when you get the music right, when you get the right grabs from your experts and, and you tie them together into a tidy narrative. I think there's not, there's nothing really more powerful than that. And I've been changed by films and I'm not just talking about documentaries um, because, uh, you know, my next couple of projects are looking like they will be more fictional. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just obsessed with stories. So for me, I think that platform, that medium video and, and, and movies is always going to be most powerful, but, there's only so many movies you can put out. Um, so I think on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, using social media <laughs> creatively and consciously, uh, you know, even myself, I'm using it too much now because I'm like under the excuse, oh, no, I'm promoting the film. 
but you know, I could be more cognizant with that. But I think um, Instagram is good for that because you you can sort of marry those visuals of photo with with some nice words. Um, and again, I'm not trying to air my air my dirty laundry on social media. I don't I don't see how that benefits the world. Um, I try and just uplift people with what I post or make people laugh or whatever. Um, so yeah, any any sort of platform that's going to in, incite an emotional response that leads to change, and I think v- movies tend to do that very well. I mean, we've all watched movies, haven't we? That have have changed our lives and. Yeah, now I'm, I'm trying to be a producer of those movies. <laughs> what do you think has been the most heartbreaking thing for you? I mean, can I ask how old you are? I just turned 28 now. So you're Kim. 28, which is a great number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's been the most... What's been the <laughs> most have daughters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just write that down. Um, <laughs> Sweetheart, in your in your twenty eight years, what's been the most heartbreaking and then heartwarming things that you've noticed in your time? Um, I think in the film when I was in Ikaria, uh, I got a text message from my dad saying that uh, his dad was just diagnosed with a terminal condition, terminal cancer. And only had a few weeks to live. So I had just spent about six weeks exploring longevity and aging well and hadn't really arrived at some perfect answers yet. And I had been thinking about my grandparents a lot whilst I was away. Um, and then t- to get that message from my dad about his dad, who, who I'd previously, who I'd had a pretty, not a I'd say poor relationship, but only because it was so infrequent. Uh, we never really engaged with with him and, and we very rarely saw him. And it made me think a lot about how uh, what we're doing and is, is impacting the outcomes that we're getting um, and also my responsibility as I tend to mostly think about my responsibilities as a public figure, but now I've started to think a lot more about my responsibilities in my personal life because the people who are here with me now are the most important people uh, in my life, my, my family and my good friends and the people I see every day. And I've got to actually start, you know, committing and putting the stuff that I've learned into practice with them. So I guess on the flip side, that has been the most heartwarming thing is, is we've since coming back, I wanted to move house because I wanted to move into um, the suburb up here in the Northern beaches where I could walk everywhere and where I would bump into people constantly where I couldn't walk down the street without seeing someone I knew. Um, and that has been my, the most heartwarming thing for me is to, to connect with those people um, and have the tools or the mindset now to sit back and, and soak up those experiences very deeply, whereas before perhaps I would have rush, rushed through them and gone, oh, I'm busy, I've got to go and change the world, I've got to go and make this film, whereas now that those experiences are incredibly important. So I guess equally heartbreaking and heartwarming is the fact that I left all these important things to go and find out just how important they were. Um, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, Kale, I think that lesson is such a beautiful lesson to have learned when you're so young. 
And I really mean that, you know, like a lot of people who are speakers or who do live a relatively public life, it's very easy, and I, and I, and I speak for myself here too, I think it's very easy to um, be going out there and changing the world and helping as many people as you possibly can. And I think that there's a very innate desire for us to contribute and make a difference um, as part of, you know, the meaning of life. But I think when you reach that understanding that you can be out there helping all of everybody, but the people that are closest to you, you don't get any time with. And the people that you love the most and your family and your friends, you don't get any time with because you're always out there doing, you know, your thing to save the world. I think that that's a really huge lesson to be 28 years old and to really get that so much so that you can spend your quality time um, or more quality time with the people that you love the most. And a lot of people don't get that until they're older and they look back on their lives and they go, I didn't spend enough time with my family. I didn't love enough and I didn't laugh enough. I spent too much time working or building an empire or, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's going to be a constant battle because I am naturally quite ambitious and I do have a lot of mm. career goals that I want to check off and a lot of those do require that I am away from family. Um, so it is going to be a very... Uh, at least now it's going to be a very conscious battle and <laughs> it's going to be um, one that I deliberate on and, and account for uh, with my time. And I think that's a really powerful note is that we are in control of our time and, and the decisions we make and, and how we spend that time. Um, so, so if we do it wisely, if we do it very consciously, for instance, if I'm busy for six months, then I might say, all right, I'm going to take three months off and, and my family and I are going to go on holiday for a little bit. Um, you know, it's just those decisions, I think, which really empower us to not only feel in control but also really determine the outcomes that we experience. And I think that's the key. I think that's the most that anybody can ask for is that whatever we do, we do it consciously, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so good on you. Hats off to you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask, I looked up ages ago and you girls might be able to help this as well, but I was looking up something interesting as to define the generations, you know, obviously we've got baby boomers and Generation X and, and the millennials, etc. And something that I read uh, was that, you know, like often the grandparents and the grandchild get on really well. There's this beautiful relationship between grandparents and grandchild. And part of that was because when you give birth to a child, you bring them up in your world, your ideals, your truths and all the things you've learned. And often they're the opposite to what you've been brought up with because part of being human is to also break the umbilical cord and to, to move away from what our parents did, to stand alone, to individuate, if you like. And then, then your children come along and they want to do the opposite to you, which is actually similar to what the grandparents were doing. <laughs> and, and I find that interesting um, that, again, you're talking about the grandparent role. And in society we seem to look at older people or they also could perhaps feel a burden as opposed to this beautiful, um, amazing plethora of wisdom and knowledge and support and all of those things. How do you think we as a society compared to the blue zones um, could embrace the grandparents and great-grandparents more? Like I know you said before about connecting more, but, you know, I know for us, I just want to give you an example. Danny was, when he was playing cricket at the top of his career, um, one day we were down in Devonport in Auckland 
and there was this old person's home right next to us and we could hear the cricket from overseas on. And I said to Danny, oh, imagine if you went in and saw them because he was at the peak of his career, right? And he goes, oh, let's do it. So we walked in and these older people who obviously love cricket and were looking out at the view of the water and they could not believe that Danny Morrison walked in the door. And we sat there, I reckon, for two, maybe three hours chatting to them and they told us things about why batsmen weren't getting the right ball and why things <laughs> weren't happening. And this other gentleman sat there and not joking. And he told us that they needed to go out pig farming because that would give them, <laughs> or pig hunting, should I say, because that would give them better dexterity and much more awareness of what to look at. And it was just the most fascinating couple of hours we'd spent. And I know a lot of sportsmen spend a lot of time going to hospitals with sick children. And I know a lot of celebrities go and see sick children. But wouldn't it be wonderful? if we actually as a culture started to embrace our elderly again and, and started looking up to them with the reverence that perhaps our Asian cultures and our, our, our blue zone cultures look to, was that your experience when you were there with them? And what would be your advice to those of us that still may be lucky enough to have grandparents on this planet? Yeah, there was a, definitely a reverence uh, afforded to the elderly in, in all the communities and they're not considered old. You know, in Okinawa, no one's old until they've reached 90, you know, and that's when they can start to walk around as if they're old. And for them, walking around as if they're old is with their chest forward and their head up high because it's a, it's a mark of pride to have reached that age and all of them are still living independently. We don't, and that's probably a big difference, is we don't strip away their dignity and the integrity with which they can live their life um, through over-medicating them. And yes, that's what we do here. Um, you know, if anyone's got any sort of issue that can be corrected with something as simple as water, we'd rather give them a medication. You know, and that's certainly been the case for, for my grandparents. Um, the, the, on the flip side, what I think people can do is is to what we I think we can do on a, on a broader, um, more zoomed-out level is to actually get our elderly people working. Um, and I don't say this as if, you know, they're being lazy, but um, by keeping them engaged, by keeping them um, productive and by giving them a, a semblance of purpose in their life, we're only going to keep them younger and more agile. If they've got a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to um, stay active and mobile, we know that movement for, for elderly people is one of the most key components of longevity because uh, the, I think the number one killer of people over the, over the age of 65 is a hip fracture. So if we can keep people moving and happy and healthy, um, and, and one of the easiest things to do with that is to give them a job, uh, then, then we'll absolutely see improvements in the health outcomes of, of our elderly people. Not only will we see a reduction in disease, we'll also see a, an increase in, in lifespan. Um, so I think that's a pretty, a pretty easy uh, step to take because we've all, we've got jobs that we need doing, and I think older people tend to bring um, a certain degree of wisdom and calm and consideration that a lot of younger people don't yet have, myself included. Uh, with my grandpa, I've I've put him to work a few times, uh, either writing letters um, or uh, I've asked him to come along to the film screenings. And, if he's doing well enough, he'll come along to the film screenings and usher people to seats. Um, you know, it's just those little things that I think we can do and, and, and making our grandparents feel like they're needed, like they're valued, 
is is going to be very, very powerful in terms of changing the outcomes we're currently getting with their health statistics. It's a little bit difficult when, I don't know, that movie with, um, oh, um, oh, his name has just gone, Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood, and he says at the end of the film, don't let the old man in. And there's a, there's a thought there too that a lot of our, you know, in our experiences, a lot of older people, they get grumpier as they get mm-hmm. older and they get more cynical and, you know, a little bit more brash with their thoughts and their feelings. And I find that also interesting, that, that also maybe that our, our, our older generations also need to take responsibility and accountability for that and, and show up more um, without it having to come from us because I believe the, the more that they're active in creating that connectivity and activity in our lives with humble um, awareness that other people are going to have their own opinions. You know, my grandmother grew up, um, she was told to start smoking by her doctor when granddad went to war. So, you know, that was a thing she believed. Now, a doctor to my grandmother was, was God. Whatever he said or she said, whatever medication he or she gave, she believed that that was the right thing from that doctor because it was a doctor saying it. I look at my parents, my, my dad is on different medications for different um, illnesses and things. And, and I know other parents that simply take the medications because they think it's a natural artifact of getting older. So do you agree also that the, the older generations also need to step it up maybe and, and not just take a back seat and, and think that they're just going to get old and medications and hip replacements and all these things are just normal as well. I mean, how do we stick a rocket under their butts too, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think we all suffer. Well, a lot of people suffer uh, from white coat syndrome. You know, we see the white coat, we see, we see the, the framed certificate on the wall and we think, oh, this person knows everything. Um, and we know it's not true. Uh, in fact, we, we find based on the statistics that um, our medical profession uh, tends to be quite fallible. Um, so we need to combat that with common sense and not just um, segmented into generations. We need people, everyone, to be commonsensical and logical with how they behave. Uh, and I guess, I guess that's difficult to, to tell someone who has um, grown up without the advent of the internet and and of free information free flow information that hasn't been um controlled heavily controlled and you know this is if i'm talking about my grandpa he grew up in a time where um you know the authorities were the authorities you know that they were they were infallible they were um in charge and they were to be respected whereas these days you know myself it's like no the authorities are there to be questioned and monitored they work for us so there's a big mindset difference so you can see where that might have come from but I think beyond all that and this is I guess more moving into my philosophy on life is that we all need to take responsibility for who we are and the actions we take Um, and if we're relying on other people to do things for us uh, we sort of miss the point Um, we can certainly contribute and be contributed to but I think in the end we've all got to take responsibility for for everything Um, you know so I guess some people are, I, I, I mean, in the longevity cultures, they, they certainly have this 
um, what's the word? There is a stubbornness about them that, no, I'm going to look after myself. I'm going to remain independent. I'm going to walk these stairs every single day until I, until the day I die at 102. Um, to that, that's definitely there. And I enjoy that. I love being around that. I remember sitting down with Chosai, an Okinawan man of 97, who had smoked since World War II. He's sitting there in his garden smoking when I got there and I said, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, what sort of cigarettes do you smoke? He said, oh, the smoky ones. And I went, okay, you got a funny man. And um, he looked me up and down at one point and he said, you look strong. I went, okay. And he said, why don't we have a push-up competition? He tells me, oh, I did push-ups until I was, I did one-arm push-ups until I was 90. Uh, and we did five push-ups together in unison. No noticeable change in breath from Chasai. I said, look, this is ridiculous. How are you 97? What's the secret? He goes, I don't know. I just never died. You know, so there's this, there, there's this beautiful smugness about the older people in these longevity cultures that how do you bottle that up and give it to the people in our cultures? I don't know. Um, but whether it's a societal thing that's developed over time, uh, a lot of these cultures, particularly Okinawa, Ikaria, had a lot of um, adversity growing up, both ravaged by World War II. Um, and I think that leaves people, people find meaning in suffering, as we know, and that leaves people with a certain humbleness about uh, themselves and, and how their position in the world. Um, so I don't know. How, how do we foster that? How do we cultivate that? that sense of ownership and I just, I don't know the answer to that besides discussing it and, and encouraging it, I don't know. Kale, I think that there's been some really amazing points that's been raised on today's show and unfortunately we've, we've run out of time. But I'm really, really keen for our listeners to be able to follow you. So where is the best place for them to continue this conversation? How can they, how can they track you down? Well, apart from... Um, <laughs> coming and finding me on the northern beaches somehow because I'll be at the beach. But uh, they, can, they can join me on, on Instagram at Kale's Broccoli. So I've just sort of rolled with the cruciferous name oh. there, at, at Kale's Broccoli, or they can just head to the website, which is kalebrock.com. Oh, sensational. You're gorgeous. We love you. Thank you. <laughs> love you back, guys. You've done an amazing job today, Kale. You've raised some really fantastic co- uh, points and questions, and it would be great to have you back on the show to just talk about this a little bit more, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to have lots of questions that they're going to want to have answered as well. So thank you a million times for everything that you're doing. And we're so, so excited to see your feature films, your your, um, documentary films come out. Thanks, guys. That you're about to bring to life. (laughs) Thank you. So for all of our listeners, head on over to Facebook at allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat where you can post your comments and your questions for our amazing Kale right there. Please go ahead and do that because we'd love to have Kale back on the show um, to have more of a chat with him. You can also head on over to allthews.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat where you can post your questions and your comments there as well. But until next time, this time next week, here on Up For A Chat, hmm. Hang in there where you get to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the ride. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.